Let me tell you why you're here. You're here because you know something. What you know you can't explain, but you feel it. You felt it your entire life. Hello and a very warm welcome to Faith and Film. Oh, how it's been a few months since I've uttered that. In fact, it's been so long that the last time I introduced you to our Faith and Film podcast, Father Peter Malone, MSc, was here in the studio, weren't you, Peter? I was, yes. Seems a long time ago now. It does, but of course, although you do sound clear, you're down the line from Melbourne. I am. I'm sitting in the middle of my room to get away from the whir of the computer. <laughs> well, it's a nice clear line, that is for sure. Now, we've got three really interesting films that are on general release over here in the UK, and I presume so in Australia, of course, Peter. We have Tomorrowland, Mad Max Fury Road and The Water Diviner, all interesting in their own special ways. But um, why don't we start with Tomorrowland, Peter? What do you think? Tomorrowland is probably the nicest of the three. And it's a Brad Bird film, Disney, bit of a family adventure. I've seen quite a few trailers on this. I'm yet to go, and I think I might take my kids, actually, although it's a 12A, so maybe I can't take all of them. But um, tell us a bit about it. Tomorrowland, a sort of different place in time and space. Tell, tell us what exactly Tomorrowland is. Well, I'll say where the origin of it came, and that's from Walt Disney himself. Mm. And while the film starts in the present with George Clooney looking to camera and describing some events and uh, a young lady off camera interrupting him all the time, it goes into flashback to the New York World's Fair in 1964. And I saw on YouTube there's a little documentary explaining how Walt Disney really was fascinated by the future and was emphasising this in some of the exhibits at that World's Fair. So it's very much, it's a Disney film, they produced it, but its origins are in Walt's interest in the future, Tomorrowland. Yeah, now everybody likes that sort of escapism, parallel universe. This really does have those elements, doesn't it? It does, and uh, it's a more gentle film. My hunch is you might have a PG rating, and uh, I think most families would enjoy it. Perhaps there are some frightening scenes inevitably for the littlest of the children, but it's actually fairly gentle, and it's very much a message film. I'd have to tell you that. A bit preachy, especially towards the end. Also, I'd better warn... It's 130 minutes, so it's not a brisk science fantasy. Tell us what the preachy message is. Well, the message is that we've become so oppressed by bad news and George Clooney's sitting there in his isolated home looking at multiple screens with all kinds of disasters and wars and making the point that because we get overwhelmed by the bad news, we often don't have the energy to do something about it and to create good news. And so at the end, not to spoil it, the message is looking around the world for all the people who could become involved in making good news to make Tomorrowland an optimistic reality. Every second that ticks by, the future is running out. Newton? The 
It's not mine. What's not yours? The pen. I've never... What if there was a place? Dad, I just need you to look at this. Does it look weird? A secret place. Where nothing was impossible. You're not saying this? Casey, stop it! Go away! Did you see the dog? Cool. I want you to take me there. Take you where? Where'd you get this? Who are you, kid? What you saw was a place where the best and the brightest people in the world came together to actually change it. We've been looking for someone like you for a very long time. Why? Did something happen over there? Something bad? They followed you here? Who? Come on! How is this a good idea? Now, I'm starting to think, in, in recent films, George Clooney is sort of, rather reasonably, I think, becoming the elder statesman a bit in his films. And he certainly comes across a bit that way in this one, doesn't he? He does, now that you mention it. And I suppose in real life he becomes involved in all kinds of causes. I thought, because he is there at the beginning... But when it goes back to 64, it's his character as a little boy. And uh, then the action shifts uh, to a young woman whose father is a NASA engineer and NASA's closing down some of its operations and she gets rather upset and starts to sabotage the plans to uh, knock everything down. But she gets arrested and amongst her goods is a little badge, a pin, a kind of medal, which when she touches, somehow she's transported into this wonderful, colourful Tomorrowland. And then the battery goes flat. And a little girl appears to her, who had appeared to the little boy at the beginning, and leads her to try to find out where she should go. And she finishes up at George Clooney's house. And together then, they have to confront the possibilities of saving Tomorrowland, which, by the way, is being ruled over by Hugh Laurie. Is it a nicely acted piece, well-directed piece, hold together well? I'm not so sure about that at some time. It's a bit... This is a confession. At some moments, I found it a bit difficult to follow what was quite happening. A bit obscure, especially towards the end, when they're there in... Tomorrowland and trying to save it and a couple of things happen which I'll leave to you and the family to see but at the end it all becomes clear and uh, very much you know as I say making explicit that message of hope so in terms of values of course it's a very positive film. Well sounds like it works for us Catholics now I'm not so sure there's quite as much hope in Mad Max Fury Road now you and I of course we could we could harp back to uh, I think, when was the last film, Beyond the Thunderdome? That's about 85. We're talking 30 years, aren't we, since the sort of Mel Gibson days with the Tina Turner soundtrack and so forth. This, is, this has been a long time coming, hasn't it? And as with some other films, like Star Wars, I say to people, those who were 15 to 20, say when Star Wars came out, 
are around 60 these days. Oh, don't say that. And those who were 20 when Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome came out are now 50. And I was 10 and I'm now 40. So they're they're grandparents. So for both (laughs) of those rather epoch-making films and their series, they influence what is now the grandparent generation as well as the parent generation. Well, for those that don't know, Peter, uh, well, certainly don't know the originals too well, maybe, give us a little overview, and in doing so, tell us whether this, in fact, is a sequel or a prequel or something that is perhaps, you know, slightly to, to one side of, of those original films. Just give us a bit of a, a backdrop to Mad Max. Well, I'd better tell you that the original Mad Max came out in 1979, and it was a vengeance kind of film, a bit post-apocalyptic, but it all took place on the road between Melbourne and Geelong to the southwest. And Mel Gibson uh, was upset at the death of his wife by these bikey and car types. And he was Max Rokotansky and became mad angry with them. And so you have a whole lot of chases and shootings. But it was a small budget film and uh, made quite an impression so that they decided then... The director, who was a a medical doctor, George Miller, he decided then to make a more spectacular sequel, which I think is the most famous of the Mad Max films. And the present one resembles it fairly strongly. And in America, they called it the Road Warrior. So it became more spectacular. The cars became more bizarre. The humans looked even uh, more bizarre than ever. But Max was there, a rescuer of children to take them to some kind of hope and safety. So when they did Beyond Thunderdome, the idea in that one was to have a kind of Roman Empire evocation and an arena where there were gladiatorial battles. That was the Thunderdome, ruled over by Tina Turner. And she sang, We Don't Need Another Hero, It's the exact opposite, of course, of the message of the film. We certainly did need a hero, and that was Mel Gibson for the third time. Now, do we need a hero in this one? I mean, obviously, I remember Gibson being very sort of wild-eyed and slightly crazy and unhinged in the early films. Is uh, Tom Hardy uh, similar in this one? Yes and no. With Tom Hardy over recent years, if ever I was to choose somebody for Mad Max... I'd be very happy with Tom Hardy. Hmm. I think he's very versatile. He's done a lot of interesting films recently. I have a great admiration for him. While I was in Tasmania working last week, the television antenna was uh, blowing in the wind, so to speak, and unclear. And I looked on the DVD shelf and found a film called Dot the Eye with Gail Garcia Bernal of 2004. Hmm. Never heard of it, so I put it on. And who's in the supporting cast back in 2004? Tom Hardy. So he's been around a long time, but he's built up a very good reputation. Now, is there any hope in this one? Are there any any, any enduring values? It, it looks quite full on, really. Tell, tell us about uh, whether us Catholics can go along and enjoy this one. I think anybody who liked the previous ones will really enjoy this one because it's, I suppose... Bigger, better, bigger budget, louder, all those kinds of things. But I'd have to say that Max is rather 
secondary in the first part of the film. He's wandering, but he's captured by this really strange commune. So you've got that kind of cult atmosphere, and there's these poor bedraggled humans in the commune, and the leader will let them have a bit of water now and again from a rather green place, they call it, up on top of the pinnacle rock. Now, into that setting comes Imperator Furiosa, who is Charlize Theron, and in many ways she steals the show. So she's driving allegedly to deliver petrol to a commune somewhere else, but in fact she's taking the wives of the leader, five young rather glamorous model types, and trying to take them to some kind of safety. And then, of course, the leader goes in pursuit and Max becomes involved. So we've got a couple of heroes then? We do. And uh, it's called Fury Road and the emphasis then on Charlie Theron as Imperator Furiosa. In this wasteland, I am the one who runs from both the living and the dead. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. It is by my hand. You arise from the ashes of this world. I won't tell you a lot of the plot, but you think it's going to end in absolute disaster, but Max actually has quite a brainwave, and yes, there is some hope at the end. Excellent. Well, Mad Max Fury Road, with a little bit of a history lesson going back to the earlier films from Father Peter Malone, 15 certificate over here in the UK. Now, Peter, let's move on to The Water Diviner. Now, this is interesting, but a bit of a historical backdrop. You can tell us a bit more about that. Gallipoli. Yes, Gallipoli is the background. I hope you notice, James, that I've slipped two of the three films, Australian films. I just mentioned that in passing. Peter, you never uh, quite mention the... it in passing. You're, you're a, a, true, a true fan of Australian cinema. Patriotic fan. <laughs> Actually, The Water Diviner, people wanted to see it. It opened on Boxing Day, and it's about World War I. It's post-Gallipoli. Of course, we have to be very careful because from an Australian perspective, we're not so keen on the British interventions in Gallipoli. So having said that, Russell Crowe, his first film as director and acting the main part, he plays a father whose three sons were killed at Gallipoli. And when his wife is still demented some years after the end of the war, he decides then that he'll go to try to find their graves. 
So he goes from northwestern Victoria where he works on a farm and has that skill of having the, uh, the wood or the wire finding water on his property, hence the water diviner. Mm-hmm. So the main part of the film takes place in Turkey. He goes over there. They don't want him to go down to Gallipoli because after the war they're trying to search for all the bodies and find the graves. But he comes across a very impressive Turkish officer and bonds with him. And the Turkish officer reminds the Australian that while Gallipoli is important for the Anzacs and our Anzac Day celebrations, 100 years this year, 10,000 Australians were killed, but 70,000 Turks were killed. So the film is trying to remind us that 100 years ago, thousands upon thousands in Turkey, in Palestine, and of course, especially in France, there were so many deaths. But it's a good drama as he searches for... uh, the graves of his sons, and uh, his adventures also take him further beyond Istanbul and uh, a whole atmosphere of um, the difficulties with the Ottoman Empire and its collapse. It looks good, good actors, interesting about the war and some good human-feeling drama. Princess Hain asked the man why the carpet he wished to sell was so expensive. What's the magic word? The one that makes the carpet fly. Tengu. That's it, Tengu. My prince, whoever sits on this carpet may be transported through the air in an instant. Ah! All right, boys, let's get out of here, all together. Tengu! It was my job to steer my boys to manhood, and I failed them. You can find water, but you can't even find your own children. Three sons killed, and it was quite an ordeal for Eliza. I'll find them, love. I'll find them and I'll bring them home to you. Your guidebook is out of date. I didn't come here to sightsee. I'm on my way to Gallipoli. There's nothing there but ghosts. Surely you were told this is a restricted zone. It's not safe. I'm sorry, but you can't stay. Maybe we could help him. You know what the chances of finding his boys are. He's the only father who came looking. Who's the Turk? Hassan the assassin. Wiped out half my battalion. We found your sons. Edward and Henry. How on God's earth did you know they'd be there? Arthur. Look after me, brothers. And keep my bloody head down. If this is your son, he was taken prisoner. He did not die here. Now, without giving too much away, there then becomes something of a question mark as to whether all the boys are actually dead, isn't there? It does. And I suppose you've guessed now that one of them isn't. And that's uh, part of the quest, to go to find the living one, track him down, and uh, trying to find uh, more information. And eventually he does. So is this somewhat reconciliatory? I mean, you you mentioned how, you know, 70,000... Turks died as well. Is, it, is, is the key to this film giving a bit more information, showing both sides, being reconciliatory? Tell us a bit about those values again. It's certainly a film of reconciliation. But the thing I think over the last hundred years, as Anzac Day in Australia has been very popular with dawn services 
by the 60s, people were a bit cynical about it and it was a booze-up for some of the veterans. But when Peter Weir made his film Gallipoli, which was released in 81, which I would recommend if people haven't seen it, Mm -hmm. one of the best Australian films, I would think, it rekindled a whole interest and awareness. But what it meant was so many Australians go to modern Turkey and so the feeling is not of hostility towards the Turks. I think that over the decades there has been quite a lot of reconciliation, even, you know, each side supporting the other. So the film is is really in that vein, but it's also a humane drama of a father and his relationship with his wife, which is very sad, and then his searching for his sons. Well, it's a 15 certificate, The Water Diviner, over here in the UK. Uh, just a quick question, um, a successful directorial debut for Russell Crowe? I think so, except I noticed that British Sight and Sound condemned him for being very conventional. And I suppose that's what a lot of film critics say. But if you like the film, instead of saying conventional, you say it's filmed in the classic mode. So for argument's sake, perhaps Russell Crowe has directed it in the classic mode. Ah, Very interesting. Peter, thank you so much for going through those uh, three current releases with us. Uh, I'm sorry it's been a couple of months. We've we've struggled to get through to one another for one reason or another. But the technology's back, you're back, and we're all happy now, aren't we? And Jurassic World is looming on the horizon. Oh, I have an 11-year-old that is continually telling me that and finding available trailers and all sorts of other bits and pieces. He's getting a bit obsessed, so maybe we can talk about that one. All right. We'll make that at least one for next time. Excellent. Uh, Father Peter Malone from Melbourne, Australia, thanks ever so much for joining us. And to to the rest of our listeners, yes, you can get Faith and Film on catholicnews.org.uk and I will make this promise and commitment to make sure we get another Faith and Film next month. Peter, thanks ever so much and I'll look forward to speaking to you very soon. Many thanks, James.